This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. This week, we're going to put our noses into an area of the body that gets a bad rep. And that's just the pits. No, really. We're talking about armpits. We're going to learn about what the smells say about us and why some of us sweat so much more than others. And in our SAS class, we're going to learn about the difference between deodorants and antiperspirants and how they can affect the scent you give off. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Techo, and I'm going to sniff out the fascinating realities of your underarms. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. How many times do you do a sniff check of your armpits during the day? We've been trained to think that the odor that comes from them is a sign of weakness and embarrassment. But is that really the case? Back in 2014, researchers looked for some of the chemicals that we tend to emit along with their smells. They came up with several common chemicals that have very long names, but as you'll find out, very familiar scents. One tridecanol. Smells musty. Nonanol, which smells grassy. Tetradecane, which is woody. And 7-acetyl-6-ethyl-1144-tetramethyltetralin, better known as musk. Here's where it gets awesome. Based on the results of this study, and they only tested a few people, younger individuals tend to have more flowery scents. It's only as we age do the odors become harsher. And that brings about an interesting question. Does our natural armpit smell have a social purpose? Our first guest has done some research on this. Her name is Jessica Gaby, and she is a postdoctoral scholar at Penn State University. Just so you know, her doctoral thesis was entitled Invisible Influence, the Role of Human Social Olfactory Cues in Ecologically Relevant Interactions. Let's just put it this way. Your scent is part of society. And as for how she got into this field, she has a very interesting story. In college, which was significantly before graduate school, I uh, took this animal behavior course and I learned about pheromones. And in the context of animal behavior, obviously not in the context of human behavior. And I thought like, oh, I, thought, I feel like people probably do some of that type of assessment. And I started thinking that you might be friends with somebody that you don't find particularly like aesthetically pleasing. You might be like close friends with somebody that you find like sort of odd looking or unattractive, but it's almost impossible to build a close relationship with somebody whose body odor that you find offensive. Part of the reason that I study this type of information is because this is something that I find pertinent in my actual social interactions, where I definitely notice people's body odor and sort of like think about how that might be affecting my interactions with them. And that was always true before I started graduate school. And I think definitely there's a lot of individual variation as far as how sensitive people are to 
those sorts of signals. But if you can think of somebody who has like terrible bad breath or like really strong body odor, or even if you're a person who really dislikes perfume and they're a person who wears perfume a lot, mm-hmm. it's really hard to build a good, strong, close relationship with somebody that you can't share physical space with. And I feel like the reaction to olfactory signals is much more sort of visceral than the reaction to sort of somebody being kind of odd looking or that you think is ugly. It reminds me of a show we did a few months ago where we talked about memory cues with smells. This was for Christmas, and it was about how different smells bring back memories. In this case, you're studying social cues from the smell and how that interacts with our interpersonal relationships. What type of cues do we give off? In the skin, there are two kinds of sweat glands. There are apocrine glands and there are eccrine glands. And eccrine glands secrete sweat that's for cooling. It's mostly water and it's meant for evaporative cooling. And then there's these apocrine glands that, are, that secrete what we think of more as these like social odors, right? So the stuff that comes out of them is a little bit more oily and sticky. It's not really intended for cooling. It more seems to contain these, these sort of social cues. There are cues for these types of social information in body odor. Pretty much the entire body of literature that deals with these social signals relies on a very specific type of data collection where people whose body odor is being used in these studies are asked to spend anywhere from like two days to two weeks doing what we call a washout, right? So essentially they're asked to eliminate any outside source of fragrance that might affect the way that their body odor smells. So the idea is to put everybody sort of on an even playing field, right? Because I might be a person who really likes wearing perfume and I wear a lot of it. You might be somebody who hates perfume and doesn't wear any. And if we're going to talk about body odor, it's really easy to confuse perfume and sort of the more metabolic process signals that come out of your skin. And of course, all of these cosmetic products that we use are really sticky. So it takes a while to sort of ensure that what you're getting when you say you're collecting body odor is really based in sweat and not based in some sort of like chemical reaction to these, to these other products. People have to go anywhere from two days to two weeks. They are asked to stop wearing deodorant, to stop wearing any kind of perfume. They're typically given like unscented soap and detergent and shampoo and asked to like wash all of their clothes in this unscented detergent. They're supposed to only bathe with these unscented products and not use anything else that's scented. So no lotions or anything like that. And then they're also asked to modify their diet. So they're asked to stop eating strongly aromatic foods. The typical list starts with chili, garlic, curry, anything that's heavily spiced. And then we throw in some other things like asparagus that are known to have metabolic effects on body odor. When you are donating body odor to these studies, you're really donating just hopefully the product of what is created by your sweat. And then, of course, your skin microbiome, which can contains all of these bacteria that are sort of digesting your sweat and creating these byproducts, which actually are what we're smelling when we talk about body odor. So you've got them to do the washout. What comes next? Uh How do you determine what those social cues are? So it depends on the study, but typically what you do is you have some sort of control condition, then you have some sort of data, you know, experimental manipulation. So when we're talking about something like emotional information, right? Uh, Does somebody who's experiencing extreme fear smell different than somebody who's not? Typically, you would have the person do some sort of sweat collection where they do a really neutral task, like say ride an exercise bike for 30 minutes. And then you would collect that sweat and you would compare it to that same person doing something really scary or anxiety inducing. Maybe that person right before they have to take their final exam at the end of the semester 
or uh, there's one study where they looked at people who were um, first-time skydivers, and they had them wear, collect their sweat while they were going skydiving for the first time, and then looked at how people perceive that sweat versus this neutral sweat. But again, all of these studies rely on this, on this like washed-out body odor, right? In my work, what I've actually been interested in is not so much whether or not there are these social signals, because it seems like there's really good evidence that there are social signals in body odor. But I've been interested in how these external fragrances that we eliminate from all of these body odor donors might actually play into the way that we perceive body odor in real life. If you're looking at the difference between a perfumed odor and a natural odor, in the context of emotion, does that mean that you can mask your emotion by masking your scent? There are some studies where they've collected body odor from people in these emotional states, and then they might present the body odor with an olfactory mask. You would have people smell that odor of sweat collected during a time of extreme fear, but you would smell it with, say, a clove odor over it. Really what you would smell is the clove odor and not be aware that there's body odor contained in the stimulus. And then obviously the control would be just the clove odor. And what we'd see is that when we do something like that, we do still see these emotional effects coming through. So we still see that like areas of the brain that deal with emotional processing light up, even if they're presented with a mask. But that's a little bit different than saying what happens if somebody's wearing, say, an antiperspirant? Or what if they're wearing antiperspirant and a cologne and they also had curry for lunch? We don't really know because a lot of the work that's out there hasn't really looked at that kind of a situation of the, at these what, we, what I would call like an ecologically relevant situation. These studies typically look specifically at the perception of armpit odor, but if you meet somebody in real life, the chances you're going to smell their armpit are very, very small, and particularly if this person is a stranger to you. Normally, if you're getting close enough to smell somebody's armpit, you've already really breached a lot of these social norms, right? You're probably very close to this person, and so the kind of information that you might expect to get from, say, a significant other is probably really different than, say, sitting next to somebody on a bus. So let me turn that around on you. Is it possible that we could potentially condition someone to have a particular type of social cue sensation due to a particular type of smell? We can do that with identifying emotions based on voice and facial movements. Could we possibly get people to become conditioned to associating smell with a particular emotion? So we sort of do this all the time in real life. Because we're breathing, we're always smelling anything that sort of happens in the context of an interaction with another person is sort of necessarily within the, con- the olfactory context of their body odor, right? Certainly, it makes sense that if you are given the idea that there are these sort of universal social cues that might convey something like fear, if you're in a scary situation with another person, you might be perceiving some of these olfactory cues. And then the next time you're in a scary situation, your brain might make the link like, oh, right, I smelled that whatever component it is of sweat that, su- that suggests fear. I smelled that the last time I was in a scary situation. And so absolutely, over time, you would expect people to become, to, to learn that certain cues suggest certain emotional states. Is there a way we might be able to use armpit odor for dating? I don't know, maybe instead of speed dating where you get to meet the person and talk to them, you just smell their t-shirts. This is actually a thing. If you look up pheromone parties, which by the way is a complete misnomer. Humans don't actually have like pheromones in the traditional sense. But if you look up pheromone parties, there was this movement in some, particularly in like major cities to get people together and they would bring a t-shirt to the party 
and they would put it in a Ziploc bag and then you would like smell all the other t-shirts. And if you found somebody that you were interested in, you would sort of bring your match up and they would say, oh yeah, 312 thought you smelled pretty good. So then you would meet at this party. And they're also at some point, I think it is now defunct, but there was a company that would actually do like a mail order smell matching. So you would like send them a t-shirt and they would match you up with they would send you like a couple of other t-shirts they thought might be complimentary. And you would say, oh yeah, I think this person C smells interesting. And then they would hook you up in real life if there was a match. I definitely did not see that on Shark Tank. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, to the best of my knowledge, neither of these two dating mechanisms is, is currently in high fashion. So it must have not been very useful. But certainly odor does seem to have some effect in the way that we make mate choices. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Visions. When you do that underarm check, you're using two of your senses. Smell for that odor, and also sight to see if there's any wetness. Unlike your scent, which requires some proximity to detect as Jessica Gaby just pointed out, you can see wetness from far, far away. This can be a great concern for anyone who wants to appear calm and collected. Say you're on stage, or even in a job interview. But for some people, the ability to stay dry is a daily struggle. These individuals have a condition in which they tend to sweat significantly more than normal. It's called hyperhidrosis. Our next guest is Yuan Zhu, and he has been studying and treating this condition at the Skin Care Center in Vancouver. He also happens to be a professor in the Department of Dermatology and Skin Science at the University of British Columbia. What causes us to sweat? Well, uh, sweat uh, can be caused by many triggers, mostly uh, physiological triggers such as the heat. And it can also be triggered by mental stress, such as uh, anxiety or in social situations that people feel nervous. But increasingly, there is a component that's been recognized is called a genetic makeup of a person. So it is partly determined by people's genetics and personality. And why specifically armpits? Armpits is particularly rich in sweat glands. Any person who sweats more than others is particularly noticeable in the armpits. Tell us about hyperhidrosis and how common it is. Hyperhidrosis, in essence, is just a condition characterized by excessive and functionally impairing sweating that occurs at least once per week for more than six months. It is extremely common, actually much more common than even what I perceived initially when I first opened the clinic. When we actually did a study, we found that 17% of Canadians, just regular people walking on the street anywhere, 17% of Canadians have this condition. And at least one third of them, that is more than 5% of Canadians, are having symptoms of sweating that are severe enough for them to seek medical treatment. So it is a very, very common condition. Are there certain types of populations more susceptible to this condition, such as age or ethnicity? The answer is yes. 
Well, first of, uh, of all, about the, the uh, age. In our studies, we find, in our clinical experience also, we find that, that the people most commonly affected by this condition are those younger than 30 years of age. And these people are two to three times more likely to have this condition than the people who are in the 30s to 60s or 60s above. So this primarily is a troublesome condition for the young people. In terms of ethnicity, we find that this is a condition that affects all races and all ethnic groups. Uh, however, the pattern of sweating is different in different ethnicities. For example, in the Caucasians, the most common body size affected by this are the armpits. And so that's why in, uh, in drugstores and in Canada and in other Caucasian-dominant countries, the uh, segment for, uh, for antiperspirants and covers a large segment in pharmacies. However, in, in Asians, you're talking about East Asians, South Asians, and South, uh, Southeast Asians, the most commonly affected body sites are actually uh, hands and feet. So for them, the uh, condition is particularly bothersome because th that hands uh, tend to be more uh, socially, even more socially relevant compared with the armpits for those people. But the reason Botox is effective for sweating treatment in addition to the uh, to the muscle relaxation uh, used for treating wrinkles is the fact that is that there's neurotransmitters that are controlling both and this exactly the neurotransmitter for both conditions are the same and this is the target of uh, of botox so so it's the same neurotransmitter that controls the sweat glands as the ones that control the muscle does that mean potentially we could be looking at treatments that focus on those neurotransmitters, that doesn't necessarily mean Botox. The answer is yes. There are studies, there are clinical reports of uh, people using anticholinergic drugs, uh, such as uh, glycopyrrolate, otherwise known as rubinol. People take that by mouth. Uh, it can be effective in some people with this. But the problems with taking pills that target the neurotransmitters that are so commonly distributed throughout the body and that is required for not only sweat production but muscle movement, the control of the eyes, even wakefulness and the production of saliva, bladder control, the bowel control. So this, this thing is, is so commonly used for most of our vital bodily functions. So if you take a pill, that basically interferes with this. You would have to take enough dosage that uh, will actually have effect on the other bodily functions. The side effects can be quite severe. As a matter of fact, the most common side effect for this type of drugs, if you use it for treating hyperdosis, is the development of dry mouth and sleepiness. So patients would find sleepy and so they can't function as well. They can't drive as easily because they may doze off and, uh, and that may be dangerous for them to drive long distance. And they may have blurred vision, and they find some of these are fine, like dry mouth is the problem. Your inclination is correct, but there are consequences. Now, in contrast, if you use Botox treatment for this, you don't, because you can target the treatment specific to areas where the sweat is coming from, such as the armpits and hands and feet, you do not have the risk of impairing other important bodily functions. So that's why the most effective and safest treatment for, for this condition is actually Botox. And that has been the treatment of choice for most people with hyperhidrosis for the past 60 years. Do people who suffer from hyperhidrosis tend to be smellier as a result? This is a complex question. 
And first of all, let me say uh, say it loud and clear that the vast majority, you're talking about 95% of people with sweaty armpits, do not have smelly armpits. If you look at the question from the other end, let's say people who have smelly armpits, some of them do have wet armpits also. And now in these people, if you treat their excessive or increased sweat production in the armpits, they do not smell as much. For some people with smelly armpits, when they undergo Botox injection, they often say that not only that they sweat less, that they are also less smelly, other people tell them. I fundamentally think that people with smelly armpits have a different condition than hyperhidrosis. It's called a bromo hydrosis. So these are people who, these are controlled by a different set of uh, sweat glands, not the ones that are producing sweat, but are producing odor. So these are two fundamentally different problems, but sometimes one condition can make the, uh, I mean, hyperhidrosis can make the smelly armpits appear to be worse. But for the vast majority of people with uh, sweaty armpits, that is hi- simply hyperhidrosis, they do not have increased uh, smell production. It's SAS class time, and today we're going to look at one more component of your underarms you probably have never seen. Microbes. These invisible organisms produce a variety of chemicals that can alter your body odor and not always in a good way. What's worse is that you may be altering that smell unknowingly, depending on whether you use a deodorant or an antiperspirant. Our guest teacher has explored the link between microbes, underarm protection, and our smells. She is Julie Horvath, and she is the head of the Genomics and Microbiology Research Laboratory at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. What do microbes have to do with how our armpits smell? That is an excellent question, and many people don't know this, but we know that armpits get smelly, and that's because you sweat a lot, but it's not because your sweat smells, because most human sweat doesn't have any odor that you can detect, but the microbes that live on your skin consume your sweat, so that's what their food source is, and then the byproducts they give off are what we smell as body odor. So it's your microbes that produce your body odor, not yourself or your sweat. We know that everybody has a unique microbiome, and I'm sure that there's particular types of species that are common to the armpit. Is there a typical microbiome for everybody, or does it happen to change regularly? How does it work? We're still learning about that at some level, but we know that everybody has a distinct microbiome. There are certainly some organisms that live in armpits versus, say, your forehead or elsewhere on your body. So there are different habitats on your body. And so your armpits are some of your wet places on your body. And so you have a lot of staphylococcus and carinibacterium, some anaerococcus, a few other things. But most people have some of those things in their armpit. It turns out that based on your daily habits, you can dramatically change those based on your food source, so your diet, how often you shower, if you're on antibiotic, many other factors about your daily life will affect which microbes live on you. And so each person can look different day to day or month to month. Certainly one person can look different from the next person, even if those two people consume very similar diets and have similar lifestyles. What's the difference between a deodorant and an antiperspirant? Deodorants are typically products that have something that kills your microbes. They often have a fragrance to them as well. And then the antiperspirants often have a deodorant component in them, but then the antiperspirant part 
contains often aluminum-based salts that will actually kind of block your sweat glands so you produce less sweat. So the idea with the deodorant is you kill off all the microbes on your skin and then you have a little bit of a fragrance to kind of mask any odor that was there. Whereas the antiperspirant is going to have the deodorant component to kill the microbes off, but then since it's reducing the amount you sweat, then there's less food source for the microbes. So even if some of the microbes didn't get killed off or they start to grow back, they have less food and so then produce less body odor because there isn't enough food to make these smelly byproducts. I published a paper looking at the effect of deodorants versus antiperspirants versus no product use at all to see how those products affected people and what lived in their armpits. And after I published that paper, I had all these people contact me to try out their favorite deodorant that they made that was a natural product. Many different people sending me things and asking me what I thought of it and asking if I would talked about it and how great it was. And I tried some of them out and then quickly realized that some of them were not really that great for me. And so started getting rashes and things and decided that I probably should stop testing different things. We know that the deodorants and antiperspirants are obviously going to differ. What is the effect on the skin microbiome? So what we found in our studies, we asked people to group themselves into different categories if they wore a deodorant or an antiperspirant or nothing. And then we asked them to stop wearing that product because we knew that those products would stop the growth of certain microbes. So we asked people to stop wearing product for up to five days. And then we swabbed them every day to see what was under their armpit. And people who wore deodorant or antiperspirant, it took them a couple days to have enough microbial growth in their armpit to look like someone who didn't wear product. And then the kinds of things that lived in armpits. So the people who wore deodorant or antiperspirant, had a lot of staphylococcus, a little bit of, um, a fair bit of carinibacterium actually, a little bit of anaerococcus, and then some other things. And that was in contrast to the people who didn't normally wear product. So the people who were normally non-product wearers had a lot more of the carinibacterium and still some staphylococcus, but less, and then some of these other microbes. And I say other microbes because they're very low abundance. So there may be 20 things and some people 100 things that live on other people, but there aren't very many of them. So few of the cells are those other things. But what's kind of interesting is that people who wore antiperspirants actually had more of those other microbes, which was suggesting that people who have this aluminum-based salt are actually selecting for a different kind of microbe to live on them. So you're adding these chemicals to your body, and so that's maybe selecting for certain microbes to live on you because of what you're putting on your skin. And so that other category kind of intrigued me. We haven't followed up on that yet, but that's one of the things you know, I might like to do in the future. And certainly everybody at the end of our study, we said, okay, now that you've been in our study for up to five days without product, now we want you to start wearing that product again. And we wanted to see, does that kind of kill off all your microbes? And yes, it did. So we asked people to start wearing an antiperspirant slash deodorant product. And then basically they had no more growth under their armpits suggesting that, yes, the antiperspirant is doing what it's supposed to do, killing off a lot of the things under your skin. But then, like I said, it's actually changing your overall ecosystem on your body, which could presumably have some different consequences down the road. Most people are probably still going to wonder, though, am I going to smell different if I all of a sudden change from a deodorant or antiperspirant? And I think the answer is yes, because when I read the paper, if I remember correctly, those other types of bacteria that are coming on they're more environmental. So you might end up smelling a bit grassy, maybe a little bit dirty. Maybe you smell like a bog. I don't know. What was it like when you were talking with these participants about the smell? So not too many commented 
I mean, a lot of them commented that they had a smell, but it was kind of a new experience for them. And they kind of just smelled the, the body odor smell. Nobody really talked about um, the soil or, you know, leafy, grassy smells or anything. Uh, and I think because a lot of the things that live on us are the crinibacterium and the staphylococcus that typically have those body odor smells. We did another study that we haven't published yet where we actually collected samples from the some of the same people, but a lot of different people, and ask them to not only stop wearing antiperspirant or deodorant, but also stop wearing the fragrances that they normally wore. And then we swabbed them for the microbes on their skin. And then we also had them wear t-shirts every day for four days, sleep in those t-shirts. And then we had a smell-off competition in the museum where we <laughs> asked people to then rate the smells of these t-shirts. So there's been a number of really cool studies looking at people looking at like men and women and having the women rate the smell. And so we wanted to kind of recreate that and see if there was any, you know, microbial basis for that. And it was really interesting because we had about 20 participants who wore t-shirts and then smelled everybody's t-shirt and only one person was able to identify their natural smell and everybody else got their t-shirt wrong. So if we said, hey, what is your normal smell like? Most people couldn't tell because they didn't smell like they're used to smelling because they had stopped wearing all their fragrances. And now it was like their natural body odor, and they didn't recognize themselves anymore smell-wise. So it sounds like it's an ecological trade-off. You're going to get one benefit, so you're not going to smell or you're not going to have wetness. But by that same respect, you're also potentially going to have a change in your microbial population. Do you think that from a consumer perspective, this is going to have any impact on whether a person chooses an antiperspirant or deodorant? If people thought about it, it might impact that because I think also knowing that these antiperspirants have this aluminum-based salt, there have been a number of studies suggesting that maybe there is something, um, people don't want to put this chemical on their skin. So I think people are going to start thinking about that um, and maybe realizing that the things they're doing are affecting the microbes on their skin and some of those microbes are good for them. So maybe we should be nicer to our microbes and not try to kill them off. Um, and so when I talk to people about a lot of my research, that is kind of one of the questions that we come to is, you know, hey, these are microbes that evolutionarily they co-evolved with you. They're supposed to be there. And so now you're doing things to kill them off. And so I think more people are becoming aware of that and realizing that maybe they should rethink what they're taking. You know, antibiotics are a great a great idea or antimicrobial products as well. You know, the things in the hand soaps that people are using, it's just killing off all of the life. So I think more people are becoming aware of that, but I think we still need to learn a lot more about what it's actually doing and what some of the long-term effects are because those things we don't know. I mean, we can say, yes, it's an ecological trade-off, it's changing things, but how long does that change persist? We don't really know. Well, that's it for this week's SASCast. I hope it inspires you to love those pits a little bit more and worry a little bit less. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support is overwhelming. We want to show that gratitude by taking your questions and answering them on the show. Send me a tweet at JATetro or an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps us to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro, 
Kelsey Campbell is our on-site audio producer and editing whiz. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. And as always, make sure to show them some sass. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.